Good evening and happy to have you with us in our continuing Bible study series in the book of Acts. We have now come to part four of what will be 12 parts in this study of the entire book of Acts. Obviously, we can't talk about every single verse, but we are trying to go chapter by chapter and look at the important details. And as I've been saying from the start of this study, our purpose is not just to fill our heads with some more knowledge about how the church began and the early history of the church, although that is certainly all a part of the book of Acts. Um, My real purpose from the beginning of this study was for us to look at these accounts of how the church began and that we might get a clearer vision of the church that Jesus is building and that we might also get stirred up in our hearts to seek God, to cry out to God in prayer, in fasting, in real repentance, in turning to the Lord, that we might also be a part of this glorious thing called the church. And we concluded last time uh, finishing up just the second chapter. That's as far as we've been able to get. And we're going to move ahead tonight into chapter 3 in the book of Acts. And I want to uh, remind any newcomers that might be with us that all of these studies are recorded. Uh, The audio recordings are available for you to listen to at any later date. Uh, There are outline notes for this entire study that will be available, and those those can be accessed in a variety of ways. You can go to our website, which is new-life-ministries.com, or .org, sorry, new-life-ministries.org, or you can listen live online at mixlr, that's M-I-X-L-R dot com, and look for the broadcast name New Life Ministries, and even if you come a day later or after we have finished, uh, the recordings are there as well. Uh, Perhaps the simplest way, if you know how to do it, is to subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast, and then you will get all of the recordings as they come in and any new notes that are posted will automatically come to your smartphone or your um, other devices. So uh, lots of ways that you can pick up on any of the past studies that you might have missed and we invite you to join in live either on the telephone or as I mentioned on the internet. Just one more comment on where we ended last time. At the end of Acts 2, we saw for the very first time uh, the mention of the word church. In Acts 2, verse 47, the Lord was adding to the church daily those that were being saved. And the last time we ever heard the word church was from the lips of Jesus himself when he was on earth, speaking to Peter And he said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he never said much more about the church. He didn't explain what it looked like or 
how it was to function or how to start one or anything of that sort. But on the day of Pentecost, most people agree the church was born. It was a supernatural birth that came about through the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And Jesus had been telling his disciples, wait, wait, sit down and wait until you are filled with power. You can't do this without power. You can't be a real church without power. And we saw that by the end of Acts chapter 2, we have a church. And we listed a number of the marks of a true church. And these are things we should continue to go back and look at and prayerfully consider. Does my church have all of these marks? And I'm going to go a step further, and let's make it a little more personal. Does my life, my own life, does it have the marks of the kind of believers we see in Acts chapter 2, filled with the Spirit, praying, fellowshipping together, uh, devoted to studying the Word together, and so forth. And these are important questions now that we need to really probe more deeply into, because if not, we can be easily lulled to sleep, and we can even be deceived, thinking that we're really a great church, and we're really a great this or that or the other, and we're really not anywhere close to what God has called us to be. And so, we need to keep looking at these accounts in the book of Acts, not just as some nice history lessons, but what is God wanting to do in my life? Where is this kind of power and anointing? Is it operating in my life the way it was in the early church? And hopefully that will stir us up to seek God earnestly in these days to come. All right. On to part four. If you're following in the outline notes, this is page 37 of the notes. And this takes us into chapter three. And this part four, we're going to be covering Acts chapters three, four, and five. And we've entitled it The Growth of the Jerusalem Church. Remember in Acts 1 8, uh, Jesus gave us an outline. For the entire book of Acts, you'll first be witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then finally to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. And we're going to be spending quite a bit of time in Jerusalem. And most historians believe it was somewhere between eight and ten years that the gospel remained in Jerusalem. They didn't move beyond Jerusalem until much, much further along on this timeline. In any event, in Acts 3, we want to begin by reading the first ten verses. Acts 3, verses 1 to 10. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day, 
to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Starting back at verse 1, a couple of interesting things to point out. We're going to notice this throughout the book of Acts. Um, The apostles continued to follow, in most cases, a protocol that was established back in the Gospels when Jesus was still here on earth, where we read of him sending them out two by two. There's some real wisdom in that, and here we see not Peter alone, not John alone, but Peter and John going together. We'll see numerous examples of this, uh, even in later chapters, Peter and John traveling together, Paul and Barnabas traveling together, etc. So, uh, we see two by two they were often moving about, even from the beginning here. The other interesting thing I see right away in verse 1, there was a time of prayer. Peter and John We're going to the temple for the time of prayer. One of the marks of a true church that we listed from chapter 2, they were devoted to prayer. Prayer was an essential part of this new organism called the church. They were meeting together regularly. There was steadfast and continual prayer. Why? Well, the church was born out of continual prayer. In the upper room, they were in prayer, constant, devoted prayer, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So it was only natural for them that after the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, that they would continue steadfastly in prayer. And, you know, I sometimes hear people say, oh, now that we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, there's liberty. We don't want to be bound by legalistic things like, you know, a specific time for prayer or a specific time for worship. That sounds very good, but really it's just a carnal cop-out of people who don't want to devote themselves to prayer, 
don't want to devote themselves to worship. The book of Hebrews warns us that in the last days, that spirit is going to be very prevalent, where people no longer want to gather themselves together. They're going to forsake the assembling of themselves together. It's absolutely critical that we have regular times together of prayer, of worship, and of Bible study. They continued here, just as we left off in chapter 2, devoted to prayer. Here goes Peter, here goes John, up to the temple. Why? Because it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's time for prayer. This was the hour of prayer. And so the apostles, we're going to find this when we come to chapter 6, when they were tempted to get involved in other activities because there was a problem with food being distributed to the widows, they had to take a stand and say, look, choose seven men to take care of this business. We must give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Apostolic life and ministry centered around these two activities, prayer and ministry of the word. And the rest of the believers in the church centered their life around what the apostles were doing. They were also devoted to prayer and devoted to the apostles' teaching. So this seemed to be a daily discipline that Peter and John were following. We don't know how much time had transpired between what we just finished with in chapter 2 and the account Luke is giving us here in chapter 3, but it seems that there continued this daily discipline of gathering together to pray. And prayer will continue to be an important theme, an important activity throughout the book of Acts. So on their way to prayer, they're not going out to have an evangelistic campaign or a healing campaign. They're just going about their daily life and their daily Christian duties when, in verse 2, they meet this lame beggar, this crippled man. We're told some details here, and we'll learn a bit more later on about this man. We know from verse 2 He's been in this condition from birth. A man crippled from birth. We will learn uh, later on, actually in the next chapter, in Acts 4.22, he's now 40 years old. So this man has been in this condition for over four decades. Crippled from birth. Every day, there he is at the temple gate. It says, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate, called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg. So this was a daily activity in his life. Every day, he's sitting in the same place at the entrance into the temple to beg for alms, to beg for some kind of monetary uh, gift. 
And we learn in verse 10, everybody knew this man. They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate. He's there every day, so everybody who comes and goes from the temple knows this man. Probably many of them had given him some coins or some change, and so uh, everybody recognized who this man was. And I can only imagine, after 40-plus years in this condition, he, he had no hope, just zero hope that he was ever going to walk. He probably had zero hope that his life was ever going to change. And you know, you and I can come to that place. It doesn't even take 40 years. Sometimes we reach a place in life where it's like, Nothing's ever going to change. It's the same old routine every day. Nothing's ever going to get better. My life is never going to be any different. I'm stuck here in this same place, in this same rut. Imagine 365 days times 40. That's a whole lot of days that this man has been doing this. And nothing's ever changed. He's still crippled. He's still a beggar. And probably he had a lot of emotional issues with depression, discouragement, sadness. We don't know really what his spiritual condition was, but maybe there were questions like, God, why me? Why have I been in this condition all these years? So many other people are walking they're well off, and here I am, a beggar. We can only speculate. We don't know what all the questions were in his heart, but I can imagine he probably had a lot of them. And all he expected from Peter and John, as with anybody else entering the temple, was a handout. That's all he wanted. And so verse 3 tells us, when he saw Peter, and by the way, we're going to come back and talk more about this temple gate, the entrance into the temple. But first of all, when he saw Peter and John, he asked them for money. That's all. He didn't ask for prayer. He didn't ask for anything else. Point blank, give me money. You know, he wanted money. Peter didn't have what the beggar wanted. Now listen carefully to this. This is profound. I'm not saying what I'm saying is profound. The story is profound. Peter did not have what the beggar wanted, but Peter had what the beggar needed. The beggar didn't need money. He needed the power of God. Peter didn't have any money, but he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the power of God. And there's an interesting message that we can extract from this story. How often you and I are like this beggar. We're searching for things in life that are not really the things that we need. And the things that we need, we're ignorant of, or we're not putting our hearts and minds on seeking them. How many people today think 
Money is the solution to all their problems. If only I had more money. Now, let me be honest. Money can help us. Money can buy stuff. It can buy a house, a car, clothes, food, and other necessities. So I'm not saying money has no place or no value in our life. Money is the power to obtain things. But how often we stop there and we think, boy, if I have a whole pile of money, that will take care of me. A whole pile of money is not what this beggar needed, nor would a whole lot of money have really helped him. What's he going to do with a whole lot of money? He's still lame. He's still crippled. He can't move. He can't walk around. And so what he thought he needed is not really what he needed. And what he was begging of Peter and John, they didn't have. But what he needed, they did. They had the anointing of the Holy Spirit. They had the power of God. They had the ability, without any money, to completely transform this man's life. You know, the, the King James uh, uses the word alms, A-L-M-S, for charity, for handouts. That's what he was begging. He was begging alms there at the temple gate. And I, I came across this. One witty old preacher has observed the crippled beggar was asking for alms, A-L-M-S, and instead he got legs. <laughs> so he's asking for money, but God wanted to give him something more than money. He wanted to give him back his legs. And, you know, this expression that Peter makes in verse 6 we need to pay close attention to this. Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. This is one of the apostles, mighty apostle, founder of the church. And by his own testimony, he doesn't have any silver or gold. Silver or gold I do not have. Well, we know from the Gospels these guys had sold everything they had. They left their businesses, their houses, they gave away everything that they owned, and they followed Jesus for the next three and a half years. Well, nothing's changed. Peter is still not rich, he's still not wealthy, and he can boldly say, Hey, Bubba, I got nothing in my pockets. I don't have any silver or gold, but man, do I have something. Hallelujah. What I have, I'm going to give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. You know, very sadly, the motto of many modern ministries is very different from what Peter said. They sound a lot more like the seventh church in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, the Laodicean church. Their motto seems to be more, we no longer need to be saying with Peter, 
silver and gold I do not have. We are rich, we have acquired wealth, and we do not need a thing. How sad. How sad. Jesus rebuked that Laodicean church, said, you think you're rich, you think you have acquired wealth, and you're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. But you know, those same ministries that boast about their millions of dollars and all the silver and gold and the multi-million dollar building projects and temples that they have, it's funny, they don't seem to be able to say with Peter, what I do have, I'll give to you, get up and walk. Because, you know, they've traded in the power of God for the silver, for the gold, for the stuff of this world. How sad. Keep your silver and gold. I want the power that Peter had. I want the anointing that these apostles had to be able to lay hands on the sick and they could rise up and walk. They could see people's lives supernaturally transformed. In one instant, this man's whole life of 40 plus years was turned upside down, or more correctly, right side up. With no silver, with no gold, with a few simple words, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Sadly, we hear of too many ministers and ministries now boasting, boasting of their multi-million dollar empires. I'm not going to mention names, but you probably know some of them. They have fleets of jets, private jets, uh, expensive limousines and fancy cars and six, eight, ten, twenty million dollar houses that these ministers live in, and yet they still have the gall to get on the Christian TV and with tears in their eyes beg and ask the poor widows and people that are suckered into watching them to send in their offerings, make a sacrificial gift to this ministry, and God will multiply your seed gift. These things grieve the heart of God. And we need to call it what it is. These are false prophets. These are charlatans that are using the gospel to line their pockets with money and have their big multi-million dollar empires. I like Peter. He's able to say, I don't have any silver, I don't have any gold, but what I do have, I'm very happy to share it with anyone and everyone. And those of us that are in leadership, those that are, of us that are involved in helping churches, what is it that we really want? Do we want to have a multi-million dollar enterprise? Or do we want the same power they had in the early church? Are we interested in building lavish, beautiful temples? And I'm going to come to that next. Are we interested in having these lavish, ornate temples? Oh, we're... 
We're starting our building program for our new temple. It's going to cost $10.9 million. And you know what it becomes? An idol. And everybody's worshiping the building more than they are the living God who saved them. Oh, God have mercy on us to stop running after this garbage and put our eyes back on the real deal. It's the anointing. It's the power of the gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. I don't have any silver. I don't have any gold. But get up and walk. Now, let me take you back here again to verse 2. It says, This crippled man was carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. You know, every detail in the Word of God is important. And sometimes there are amazing messages, even in these little details, that are given to us in the biblical accounts. How ironic that the entrance into this temple has been given a name. It's called the Gate Beautiful, the Beautiful Gate. And of all places, that's where this crippled man, apparently, has been sitting day after day after day, year after year after year, and now he's over 40 years, still sitting outside the temple at the Gate Beautiful. I don't know if you get this picture, but... This is a reflection of what is often happening in the world today. We build these beautiful temples. Oh, my. Beautiful stage and carpet and lights and curtains and sound system. Multi-million dollar projects. And we're so happy and we feel so good about our temple. And right there in the shadow of that temple are people that were incapable or powerless to help. Because instead of being able to say like Peter, what I do have I give you, we've lost the power, we've lost the anointing, and we've become just a multi-million dollar corporation with a CEO with a financial board, and all we're looking at year after year is our bottom line, and what's our next big financial project. Here's a crippled man right at the entrance into this lavish temple, and ironically, the gate has been given a name, beautiful, and he can't go in. He can't even enter into the temple, nor is the temple able to help him. And I think it highlights very often what happens. These great uh, ecclesiastical systems, these great denominational kingdoms with all their money and pomp and glory and power, they no longer have any power to help those that are really in need, either physically or spiritually. We may have spiritual cripples at the door to our church, and yet 
were so wrapped up in raising money, having fundraisers, and our building programs that were blind to the needs right there at our doorstep. But I want to go a little further with this. As I was meditating on this, the Lord gave me a beautiful picture that goes way beyond the, the physical. What, what happened here physically is amazing enough. This crippled man got his legs back. His whole life changed. But I want you to follow me here for a minute. This lame man was unable to enter through that gate into the temple. Temple, of course, is the place where you go to meet God. You're going to be into the, in the presence of God, to worship God, to offer God your gifts and your sacrifices. He was unable to enter. But when he received what Peter gave him, let me go back and read this to you again. Verse 6, silver and gold I do not have. What I have I give you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Listen carefully. He jumped to his feet, began to walk, and where does he go? Then, and only then, he went with them into the temple. Only now is this man entering into the temple. As far as we know, he never went beyond that gate until this day. But oh, when the power of God hit him, he was walking and jumping and praising God and went into the temple with Peter and John. Now, we are told in Hebrews 10, verses 9 and 10, I'm sorry, verses 19 and 20, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, that through the shedding of his blood, Jesus became our great high priest, and he made a new and living way into the most holy place of God's temple, through his own blood. Listen to those words, a new and a living way. This crippled man discovered a new way into the temple, when Peter and John gave him what they had, the power of God, he was now able to enter into the temple. He found a way into the temple. And by the way, I don't believe in coincidences, either in real life or even in the Bible. Every detail in the scriptures is significant, and that's why you and I need to search the scriptures. Dig into this book called the Bible. Don't just settle for a few verses that you hear the preacher preaching on Sunday morning. Get into the Word. Read it from Genesis to Revelation. Study every theme, everything you can possibly think of. Dig, dig, dig into the Word. Now, here's an interesting detail. When did this happen? Well, Acts 3.1 told us it was 3 in the afternoon. Now, the Bible didn't have to give us that information, but it did. Therefore, it's significant. It doesn't say 4 o'clock or 2.30. This was at 3 in the afternoon that this took place. Let me read to you 
a scripture before I even make any comment on it. Matthew 27, verses 45 to 51. Describing the final hours of Christ's crucifixion and his ultimate death on the cross. It says, from the sixth hour, they started counting hours from 6 a.m. So the sixth hour is 12 noon. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour. Ninth hour is 3 p.m. Huh. How interesting. From the sixth hour, 12 noon, until 3 p.m., darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 50, And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Verse 51, At that moment, not an hour later, not at 4.30, At 3 p.m., at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. This is so profound. The curtain of the temple was torn, not from bottom to top. This wasn't man tearing his way into the holiest of all. This was God tearing that veil in half, making a new and a living way into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice has now been made, his blood has been offered on the altar, and he's been accepted by the Father as a pure, spotless, holy sin offering. God responds not only with an earthquake, he shakes the whole earth, but he responds by tearing that veil in the temple from top to bottom. Oh, hallelujah. A new and a living way was made for you and me at 3 p.m., the day Jesus died. I don't think it's any coincidence that at 3 p.m., God chose to show this poor, crippled beggar a new and a living way into the temple through the power of the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 7 again, instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. This is a supernatural miracle. Instantly. What was not working for over 40 years is now not only functioning, but it's working real good. He's not been able to walk for 40 years. You know what happens to the muscles in your legs when you haven't been able to exercise them for that long? The muscles have all completely atrophied. He has no more strength whatsoever. But not only was the condition of his feet and ankles rectified, some sort of supernatural power and life enters this man's legs, his feet, 
and his ankles because he jumped to his feet, began to walk, but it goes on to say he went into the temple walking and jumping, walking and jumping and praising God. You don't jump on legs that haven't had any exercise for 40 years unless some kind of supernatural transforming miracle has taken place. And, again, all this is taking place at 3 in the afternoon. Just an observation. I'm not trying to make a doctrine out of this, but I think it's significant that we're given the time of these two events. The time when the veil of the temple was torn as Jesus hung on the cross, and the time when the entrance into this temple opened up for this lame beggar. He is now finally going through the gate beautiful. And the gate beautiful, my friends, has a name. His name is Jesus. He tells us in John chapter 10, I am the gate. Nobody enters in but through me. I am the door. I am the way. He was certainly the way for this crippled beggar on that day. Now, all Peter said was, whatever I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ. You know, it's, it's a little sad, but in church circles... We all know how to say, in the name of Jesus. We repeat it often at the end of our prayers. Um, but I'm, I'm afraid sometimes we lose sight of the significance of those words. In the name of Jesus is a way of saying, I'm not saying this or doing this with any confidence in my own power, authority, or ability. I am doing this in someone else's name. In the name of Jesus, as one of his representatives, as one of his ambassadors, I appeal to his authority, to his power, and to his name. You know, sometimes we're afraid to lay hands on a sick person because we don't feel like we have a whole lot of power in us. Well, you might as well stop looking within yourself for the power. The power is not in you. It's in the name of Jesus. And we don't do things in the Christian life out of feeling. We do it out of faith in His name. And this is a throwback to what Jesus had announced to them as he was ascending back to the Father. I'm going back to the Father, but understand one thing. All power, all authority, has been given to me. All power and all authority has been given to me. So, when we say we're doing something in the name of Jesus, what we're really saying is, we have all power and all authority behind what we're doing, because he's authorized it. 
He told us to go lay hands on the sick and they would recover. He told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We're not doing this in our own name. And so we don't have to feel like, well, I don't feel real adequate today, so I think I'm going to stay home. No, you're never going to be adequate. That's the whole point. We do this in the name, in the power, and in the authority of Jesus Christ. Because God, we saw this in Acts 2, verse 36, God has made this same Jesus both Lord and Christ. He's Lord of all. He's Lord over every sickness, Lord over every demon, Lord over every body. He's Lord. And therefore, in his name and in his authority, I can do all things. When the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, on the apostles and all the other believers gathered there in the upper room, they received power. That was what they were told to wait for. Wait for power. Wait for power. The whole emphasis is on power. We talked about this a few sessions ago. Yes, they spoke in tongues when the Holy Spirit came, but that wasn't the central focus. Jesus never told them, sit down and wait ten days until you're all speaking in tongues. He didn't even say anything about tongues. He said, wait for power. And your focus and my focus must be, I need the power of God working in my life. And if it's not working, I need to sit back down and pray, repent, cry out to God until I'm endued with power. These apostles, Peter and John, they knew what they had received. I don't have any silver, I don't have any gold, but man, oh man, I got something. I got power in my life now. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were beginning to walk in that power, in that authority, in that boldness. And although the text here doesn't use this terminology, what we're actually already beginning to see here are manifestations of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. One of the manifestations of the Spirit listed in 1 Corinthians 12 is, and it's in the plural, Gifts of healings. It's actually plural for both words. Gifts of healings. In other words, there are different kinds of gifts for different kinds of healings. And they manifest in many, many different ways. This was the gift of healing a crippled man that was being manifested here. Another one of the gifts that's listed in 1 Corinthians 12 that is also in operation here, is miraculous power. This was a miraculous thing that happened. Not only was he able to walk, he didn't just start limping around on crutches, he jumped to his feet, his legs, his ankles, his bones, his muscles, everything fully energized, like he's an NBA basketball player. It was a miraculous thing that took place. And so... These apostles, uh, we already read in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, uh, the details are not given, but it did say in Acts 2, verse 40, 43, 
everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous, I'm sorry, many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. So they were already seeing miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit. This is the first one where we can really put it to a face and a specific instance where a crippled man was completely, instantly, totally healed by the power of God. But notice another interesting thing in the story. Back to Acts 3, after saying, get up and walk, verse 7, it says, taking him by the right hand, Peter helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And you might be wondering, well, if this was such a great miracle, why did Peter have to help him up? He could have just shot to his feet on his own. Well, I don't have a full answer to that, but in our walk of faith, there are many examples throughout the scriptures, and especially in the Gospels where you can see this, there's a curious and even mysterious mingling of the divine and the human. It's not to in any way take away from the supernatural, absolute power and authority that God has, but there's always this mingling of the human with the divine. Peter helped this man to his feet, and all of this happened instantaneously. It happened in in a split second. But as Peter is doing his little part of just helping this man to his feet, God did the rest. Supernaturally healed this man's legs, and the next thing you know, he's walking, leaping, jumping, and praising God. What I take away from this, and what I've written here in the notes, is this. We must do what we can do, then God will help us do what we cannot do. Pretty simple. Peter did all that he could do. He could help this man up to his feet. The rest was up to God. And if God had not done anything, the man's going to fall right back down on the floor. So it's not like Peter... uh, perform some trick or some magic to get this man walking. He just exercised his faith in lifting the man up and then let God do the rest. Peter's helping this man to his feet in no way takes away from or detracts from the supernatural power of God that was at work here. I want to point out to you at least two occasions in the ministry of the Lord Jesus where he did the same thing. So I think Peter is just imitating what he had seen Jesus do on many occasions. For instance, uh, in Mark chapter 1, this would have definitely made an impression on Peter because it involved his own mother-in-law. Mark chapter 1, verses 30 and 31 Simon, remember Simon's just another name for Peter, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. 
and they told Jesus about her. So Jesus went to her, follow this carefully, took her by the hand and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. It doesn't say Jesus prayed for an hour and a half, cast out devils, bound and loosed, spoke 45 different healing verses over her. All he did was take her by the hand and help her out of bed. But as he did that, the power of God hit her, and by the time her feet were on the floor, the fever was gone. And she didn't need, you know, ten more days of bed rest to get over the flu. It says the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. <laughs> and as soon as she got out of bed, she's making tea and coffee, making food for them all, waiting on them. Look in Mark 9, verses 25 to 27. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. Verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Now, in both these cases, you can ask the very same question you might have asked about what Peter did in Acts 3. Why, why does Jesus need to help any of these people? Can't the power of God lift them up? Certainly. But it seems, in all of these cases, that God likes to have this interaction with man. He likes for us to be involved in what he's doing. We're not stealing his glory by helping a crippled man to their feet. We're not stealing his glory by helping this, the sick mother-in-law out of the bed. God's going to get all the glory when the fever leaves them, or when their lameness is healed, or when this man that looks like a corpse stands to his feet completely whole. And actually, we'll see this again later on in Peter's ministry. Look in Acts 9, verses 40 and 41. In this case, we're dealing with a true dead person. Dorcas, also known as Tabitha, died. And Peter goes to her, Acts 9, verse 40. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, <coughs> Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes. I mean, we already know there's a miracle taking place. She opened her eyes. And seeing Peter, she sat up. So why the next verse? He, Peter, took her by the hand, and here it is again, helped her to her feet. That doesn't detract from the miracle. <laughs> the miracle's already happened. She opened her eyes. 
she saw Peter. Peter just does what any ordinary human being would do. He helped her up, took her by the hand, and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. So, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Peter takes him by the right hand, helps him up, and we've already commented on the next part. Instantly, I like that word, instantly. Now, that's not to say some healings aren't gradual. There are some healings recorded in the Gospels that were not instantaneous. Many of them were. I like instant healings. Instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. Then God gets all the glory and all the praise. He went into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. We will see in the next chapter, in Acts 4, verse 16, even the priests, the unbelievers, were referring to this as, quote, an outstanding miracle. This was an outstanding miracle. Forty years a cripple, in one instant, completely healed. And, as we've also pointed out, how fitting that the first steps this man should take would be into the temple. And we're about to close here tonight, but I want to finish on this note. You know, having been in the ministry for over 40 years, I can think of many, many, many miraculous healings, miraculous answers to prayer that we have witnessed over the years. But it's also with sadness in my heart that I have to tell you, in many cases, as soon as that person receives their miracle, they're running out the door, they're leaving the church, never to be seen again. Oh, hallelujah, I got my feet back. See you later, I'm off to the world. I got to go to my job, my career, and my ambitions. Not this man. His new feet, what does he want to do with them? Went into the temple, clinging to Peter and John. Didn't want to leave these guys for anything. He wants to be where they are. He wants to be in the temple now. But how sadly, we often see the opposite. People come to church. Oh, and when they're in a need, boy, they'll come to the prayer meeting. Pray for me, I need a job. Pray for me, I'm sick. Pray for me, this, that, or the other. <clears throat> and just like the nine lepers that Jesus referred to in Luke 17, as soon as they're healed, as soon as they get what they wanted, they disappear. Never to be seen again. And it even amazed Jesus that only one of those ten lepers who were healed came back to give glory and praise to God. The other nine took their healing, took their miracle, and they ran away, never to be seen again. You see, that shows a total lack of understanding of why God healed us in the first place. It's not so we can go off running to do our own thing. Now, we're prisoners of Christ. Now, We've surrendered our life totally to Him, lock, stock, and barrel. I want to be with Him. Wherever He is, I want to be with Him. 
I want to be in God's house, in God's temple. And I don't know if these numbers mean anything, but in the story that I'm referring to in Luke 17, only one out of ten came back to give glory. The other nine ran away. And sadly, I have to tell you, the majority of people that I've seen receive real miracles from God over the years, they fit into that same category. They're nowhere to be found now. They're not serving God. They're not doing the will of God. They grabbed that miracle or that answer to prayer, and they went right back to living for themselves, doing their own thing. Not so with this man. He ran into the temple, and uh, I'm getting a little ahead, and we're going to pick this up right here next time. But look at verse 11. It says, While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them. I like that. This guy is actually grabbing on to Peter and John. Not only does he want to be in the temple, he doesn't want to let loose of these guys. He loves these apostles. He wants to be with them wherever they're going. I'm going with them too. And it says in verse 10, Seeing this miracle, everyone was filled with wonder and amazement because they realized a notable miracle had taken place. Remember, they all knew this man. He wasn't a stranger to them. They had seen him day after day after day, sitting at the gate, begging. They know it's the same man. And so they're filled with wonder and amazement at what God had done. We're going to close it off here and pick it up next time at verse 11. Let's just summarize a few things. Um, Peter and John are on their way to the hour of prayer. Prayer was an important part of the apostles' daily lives. Prayer ought to be an important part of your life and mine. And very often, when we're just going about our daily devotion to God in prayer and in worship and in studying His Word, God will prepare people and situations that we just walk into where God wants to manifest His miracle-working power. Such was this day. Peter and John weren't going to the temple to heal people. They were going there to pray. But God had other plans. God had already singled out this cripple and prepared him for a mighty miracle. And apparently God knew that when he received his feet, he was going to use them for the Lord. Goes into the temple, walking, leaping, and praising God. And this, of course, creates quite a stir, and it's going to pave the way for the first persecution in this infant church. And we're going to find this all the way through the book of Acts. Simple pattern. They preach the gospel, God moves, people are saved, people are healed, 
the devil gets angry and he stirs up trouble. And there's persecution, there's imprisonment, there's even death that takes place. But they keep on keeping on, preaching the word, getting locked up, getting beaten up, getting put to death, but the church keeps growing, the power of God keeps manifesting, and the thing starts to spread like wildfire. So, Peter and John manifesting the gifts of the Spirit here, this lame cripple, by no coincidence, is healed at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and for the first time, a new and a living way is made for him into this earthly temple, signifying what Jesus also did at 3 p.m. He tore the veil into the real temple, making a new and a living way for you and for me through the blood of Jesus Christ. And all that took place here was in the name of Jesus Christ, in His authority, in His power, in His righteousness. As representatives of Christ, they used His name. This wasn't just some charm they waved around, oh, in the name of Jesus. They understood what they were saying. We are under His authority. He has commissioned us to do this. And therefore, as his representatives, we know that he's backing us with all of his power and all of his authority. Therefore, in his name, get up and walk. And the man was instantly healed. May we, hopefully, be able to say like Peter, we may not have a lot of silver or gold, but man, we got something. We got the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We got the authority of Jesus Christ backing us. Therefore, let us go into all the world, preaching the gospel, laying hands on the sick, raising the dead, doing signs and wonders in His name to bring glory and honor and praise to Him. Let's close in prayer tonight, and we'll continue right here next time. Father, I thank You that you've given us these accounts in the book of Acts of real-life stories, real testimonies of things that began to happen after you visited the 120 in the upper room, after this thing called the church began to arise and grow and be manifested as a living organism. Lord, I thank you for your promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You will have a church in these last days. Your church, without spot, without wrinkle, full of power, full of anointing, full of conviction, a church that is devoted to prayer and to the word of God. God Stir us up to keep seeking your face for this church to arise in these last days. We're not interested in silver, gold, lavish temples. We're interested in what Peter and John had. They had the power 
to set people free. They had the power to transform people's lives instantly in the name of Jesus Christ. God, we give ourselves to you, to your calling, to your purpose, and to your plan. Use us in these last days to further and advance your kingdom, to knock down the gates of hell, to crush the heads of serpents and scorpions, and to see mighty victories in the name of Jesus Christ.